Well, we're here on another edition of the Roaring Twenties podcast, joined by our co-host as always and color commentator at Royals Games, Pat Richards. Pat, it's great to see you. And our guest today has been the only official team photographer in Royals history. 20 years, going to be the 20th season this year for Brad Dre of Pradhan Photography. Brad, how are you? How's the family? How's everything been the last uh, few weeks and months? We're all hanging in. Um, fortunately, my family, myself, we're all safe. Um, business has been a real roller coaster. You know, we were shut down pretty much completely for about eight weeks. Um, I was able to do a few things, but I'm glad to be back and, and working and looking forward to hopefully some uh, ECHL hockey photography. I was going to say that, you know, it's you think of a restaurant maybe having to shut down, but um, those first few weeks, what was it like for you as you were trying to get your footing and make sure that, you know, everything was okay with your business? Yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate. I don't have a, a, a very small staff. Um, we, we were able to keep doing some back behind the scenes work, some things we had already photographed, getting finished and processed. Um, but we went a good five weeks without photographing and that that kind of hurt. And then it's going to catch up, you know, these next couple of weeks, we don't have that flow coming in. So it's been interesting, but I'm fortunate I've been at it long enough and diverse enough that um, I'll be able to hang on. But I do feel for all those others, as well as you guys. I mean, you were fortunate that they were able to hang on. You look at minor league sports and there's a lot of guys that aren't working and, and that hurts everybody. And, and the staff that supports minor league sports. I mean, that, that's a tough, a tough thing. Before Brad, how we, long does it take you? How long does it take you to gear up when, when after being down for those five weeks? It really isn't too bad. I mean, I, I can I can pick it back up. It's getting things back on my books, and you know, the, the other thing is we do a lot of work for businesses, and were they open? Could we go on location? That kind of thing. So, um, you know, as you know, I do a lot for a hospital, Pat. So you know what hospitals are like. They're 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 really locked down. So yeah. we weren't able to go on site and do some of their marketing stuff. So we had to do some juggling there. Before we jump into the history and your history with the team, and uh, we'll have some fun conversations in this one. <laughs> uh, the, this Royals team look really good, guys. And uh, Pat and I, we talked about it. It's like four months ago at this point. It was a rainy day, and we were talking back in March about the season. But, Brad, you're as much a part of seeing what's going on on a, a day-to-day basis for every home game, and you know how these guys are doing. And you hear more than Pat and I about what the coaches are saying to the boys. So, what was your impression of this Royals team this year and what they you know, may have been capable of doing? I think as a whole, they were the strongest team I've seen in 20 years for, for us. Um, I mean, obviously the 2013, but 2013 was a little different in that there's a lot of in and outs and towards the end, you know, with Riley coming in and things like that. This team was fairly stable throughout. I mean, you know, we lost Ralph early on, things like that. But I, I think as a whole, it was the strongest team I've seen. And just what I hear on the bench, um, there was a, a lot of teamwork. I mean, a lot of talking, a lot, a lot of that kind of thing. I mean, you know, I don't hear it all, but I, I just felt a sense of, unfortunately, I think this was the year we could have run it right to the end. You know, Brad, I think you're right, because you look back on the 2013 team and, you know, maybe the Royals were the best uh, uh, at using the surprise of the lockout and all the American League players that were in this league, and they used it to their advantage and won the Cup fair and square. But when you look at what perhaps is considered to be a normal ECHL season, I think you're right. This was an extremely talented and deep franchise, and it's I still feel the pang, and I'm sure that David, you, and everybody associated with the organization does, that uh, I, Brett, I agree with you. I think this team had a real chance to make a lot of noise in the playoffs. Unfortunately, we'll never be able to see that. What do you think was the key to 
uh, how that room just came together. From what I saw, I, I just didn't think, I mean, there was no real standout. There was no me's. There was a lot of us's. Um, I mean, the lines were, were fairly even. They switched in and out. Um, you know, you could tell by the scorecard, you guys saw it. There, there wasn't a, a predominant player. You know, there was a lot of guys scoring a, a point or a goal, and I think it was spread evenly, and it made it tough to defend. What do you guys think? I mean, this team was from the get-go, the camaraderie, and you hear the guys say that, and part of the camaraderie comes with winning, but camaraderie started back in the preseason, and it was fairly evident from that first preseason brawl. The guys go back and talk about it every time where uh, Hayden Hodson got a couple games suspension for it and Braden Lowe ripped a guy's chain off and had a little piece of jewelry for him the rest of the season. And the guy, and Garrett Mitchell slugged uh, Gabriel Pass at center ice on Adirondack. And it was like, that was the moment that set the tone. And these guys were together. They realized that their captain, a nine-year pro at that point, and Garrett, that had played 400 American League games, he set a really great example. I, I thought the leadership group was excellent. And Kirk McDonald, I mean, he, he's figured so much of this league out, both from his system standpoint, how to find good players and develop players, Pat. I think we really saw a jump in how the guys that came in developed so well this year guys like Rob Michael and other rookies and young guys and I think that he has uh, kind of extended uh, some of the things that Larry did which is the ability to identify talent but secondly I think he has uh, if you will squeezed his system you know so tightly that it's relatively easy for a player to come in and get up to speed very quickly you mentioned Rob Michael number of guys that maybe didn't contribute hardly at all the first 10 or 12 games. And when they were forced, for whatever reason, into the lineup, it was like an instant fit. And I think that that's because in practice and in video work, they were, they're schooled so well in what Kirk's expectations really are. And the other thing that Kirk pointed out throughout the course of the year, I think Nick Luco said this to us on Radio Recon or an interview, but that in his first and second years, it was teaching guys everything at the start. We're going to be about this, 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 this. And this year heading in, Kirk pointed out, Nick pointed out, players pointed out, the message was very simple and direct, which allowed them, the team, to get off to a good start. Having strong goaltending with Karelius Demanko really figuring, figuring it out certainly helped. It's almost like you're going back. It thinks like you're turning back to 2013 in certain ways because these last four months have been so uh, de-hockified, maybe, de-hockeyed. But, uh, man, this year was a special year uh, for so many, so many standpoints. And as we've begun to hear and announce player signings, this will come out next week. Braden Lowe and Frank DeChera have officially resigned with the team. And with that being said, plus Garrett Sassir at the time we announced this, every one of the guys said unfinished business heading into this season. That is, for the returners, the theme of what could have been this year, and they're already motivated to get back on the ice. And, man, I wish we could have seen a playoff series against Newfoundland. That would have been uh, – that would have been fun. So go ahead. Pat. I was going to say it sure would have. It's uh, that's probably one of the unfortunate uh, aspects of the pandemic. We're just never going to get to see that as much as we all three of us and all the, the whole organization would love to have had that series occur. Yeah. Brad, let's jump into your history. You've been with the team 20 years. How the <laughs> heck did it all begin? How did you become the photographer for the Reading Royals in the inaugural year? I've been a hockey, lifelong hockey fan. Um, in my youth, my grandfather used to take me to Hershey. Uh, you know, we had very little hockey here in Reading. 
Um, then as I, as I grew, um, I actually played some ice hockey, all pickup hockey. Uh, Reading had no rinks in, in the, my years of growing up. Um, yes, David, I'm that old. Um, but <laughs> there, was, there, was no, there wasn't a sheet of ice. The closest sheet of ice was Hershey behind the arena. So we used to get ice time at like 9 o'clock at night, pile in a car and throw the sticks into the middle and skate out back behind the Hershey arena and, and come home at midnight. Um, you know, God knows how my parents stood for that. I mean, that was back when I was still in high school. So, um, but, you know, hockey's always been an interest. And when I saw we were getting a team, I was thrilled, obviously. Um, and I just reached out. I said, hey, you know, you guys looking for, for any, any help here? Um, you know, let me know. And it, it all kind of panned out. I mean, and back in those days, Ray was the GM. And Ray was a man of few words. I mean, uh, you never knew whether it was happy, angry, going to cry or smile. But uh, I got an email back. It said yes. And that was it. <laughs> what, what was your first assignment after the yes? What was the, how did you get started? How did you build the platform that team you- Team headshots. Team headshots were the, were the first thing because, um, you know, th that was really where it all starts, as you guys know. You know, they start coming in um, late September, October, and they said, we need headshots. And, you know, at that point, um, John was in charge, Curtis. And, uh, you know, he kind of, we both were kind of flying blind, but- it worked out well, and then from the headshots, we, you know, we moved forward to, I mean, opening night was incredible. I mean, that place, there wasn't a, a seat to be had. There were um, indoor fireworks, which delayed the game a little bit because somebody didn't realize that the smoke would be as thick as it was. But, um, and we, we moved forward from there, and kind of on the, on the technical side, um, digital photography was just coming into to its own. Um, so I, I, when I found out I was gonna do this, I went out and bought my first pro digital camera because they were just really being released. And um, it was, a, it was a, a big jump. Um, it was a whole 2.8 megapixels and it was a $6,000 camera. So, oh. <laughs> so, so in the beginning years, uh, the, the quality wasn't what we're used to now, but um, it gave you the ability to, to get things moving quickly. You know, that you could, you could shoot it and by the end of the period, you could have an image that you could, you could put up and, and social media wasn't as prevalent, but by the end of the game, I could send Curtis something and he could post it on the website. So basically now the process from what I understand is you take the pictures on a camera that's more than 2.8 megapixels. <laughs> um, you send it to your phone and then you email it over to us. What's, what was the process back then? Because there um, wasn't, there wasn't yeah, this nifty iPhone to do that. <laughs> And even now, I will still, between periods, I'll, I'll jump into the, the, uh, the room just off the bench and throw the card into the laptop. That way I can edit quicker. Um, I'll, I'll take a quick glance, and I try and get something to you, David, before yeah. the, the, the start of the next period so that, you know, social media has, a, has a, an outlook on it. But, um, yeah, it's definitely, I mean, compared to the old days when you had to go back and process film and things like that, uh, it, it's just, it's a different world. But it's awesome. I mean, the, the phone can be used as a transfer. It's, it's a hot spot. Um, I mean, let's face it, my, my phone now is better quality than my first pro camera. <laughs> so it's been, a, it's been a fun transition. And, you know, for a guy my age, I mean, I'm going to be 60 this year. And I had a huge learning curve. I mean, this whole computer, you know, I, it was funny. I did a, uh, uh, career day in a, in a middle school about a, two years ago. And I was talking to the kids and I said, you know, guys, when I was growing up, I didn't have a computer. Well, this little kid raises his hand. He goes, were you really poor? <laughs> no, there, there weren't laptops back when I was a kid. <laughs> so from there, I'm just go ahead. No, go ahead. That's what's up. I was just going to ask a follow up. From there, after the headshots, did you kind of 
lead the Royals through with your ideas for how to use your skills or did, did John Curtis and Ray have an idea of how they wanted to use photography in marketing the team? I think John and I kind of collaborated on it. Um, Ray kind of stepped back. He was, you know, he, he led, but it wasn't like a hands-on with everything. John and I kind of worked it out. Um, and as I said, the social media wasn't as big as it is now. Um, so we really didn't have that venue. Um, I love the way it's gone now, you know, with, with the, the social media, keeping people abreast of it. Um, I think, you know, Mark started it. Um, Mark's post game, we started adding photos to his post game report. Um, then he did the, uh, the weekly uh, kind of recap. As you remember, Pat, he always stuck, yes. stuck a couple images in there. Um, I started tweeting from a personal side. So it's kind of rolled on on its own. Um, so it's kind of team effort and it's been a, a great experience for me. And it, it kind of pushed me to do the, the social media more than I probably would have. From the, those first few years, well, first I'll ask the selfish question. Uh, Taylor Swift used to sing the national anthem at Royals games. Did you ever have to take any pictures of? Uh, you know what? <laughs> Honestly, I went back in the files and looked, and I can't remember Taylor Swift. I mean, it, it's really <laughs> weird. It, um, it's she must have been there, and, and I was there. I mean, I, the other night when we we talked about doing this, I I kind of sat down and looked, and I it's kind of amazing to think that I photographed over 800 Royals games. I mean, you, you got to figure. 40 a year for, for 19 years as a minimum with the playoff runs and everything like that. And it's like, when I say it that way, it sounds incredible. Um, so, and there's stuff that sticks out and there's stuff that I, I can't remember. And one of the unique things from my perspective is I think you and Pat have a much more, a different vision. You see the game. I see what's in the frame. So I couldn't tell you, somebody will say, well, did you see that play? Well, I might have saw part of the play, but I don't see the entire play. And I miss that. So watching hockey on TV, it's like, wow, it's a different perspective from what I'm used to. Wanted to ask you specifically about how the heck you do what you do, which I find really interesting because I try to take a picture on my phone and it's blurry when someone's moving. And part of that's the technology. How, what's, the, what's the art like of anticipation and you see something happening and it clicks? I should, I should move my camera here. Take us through that. I want to hear the entire process because I know oh. nothing about it. I think anything is sports photography, and I think a lot of sports shooters will tell you, knowing the sport, you can kind of anticipate what's going to happen. Um, you're kind of, you're shooting with one eye in the camera and the other eyes like looking out to the side, or you kind of expect what's going to happen, um, you know, where it's going to go in the zone, that kind of thing. Um, but I think knowing the sport is a big part of it. The technology, the camera has come a long way. I mean, when I first started out, it was manual focus. There was no autofocus. So you, you you missed a lot more shots because so you got everything down and focused. Um, the other thing is when I started out in, in the business, you know, we go to shoot an event. I shoot a lot of different kinds of sports, but you go to a football game and you know, my original boss before I bought the business said, here's a roll of film. There's 36 shots. Go out and get me seven good shots that we can use. So in the back of your mind, you're a little bit more hesitant to shoot. It's like, Oh, wait a minute. I only got 36 shots. You know, now on an average night, and I'm a low-end shooter because I still think in that film mindset, I, I, on an average night, I might shoot about 300 images for a game. But I know there's people that are shooting six and 700 images for a game. It's just a different mindset. I mean, my, my son's a photographer. My daughter's a photographer. You know, their generation, it's like they shoot a lot more than I do. Where are you, if you see a two-on-one developing and you're thinking maybe they might score and get a celebration, I know every shot is different, 
but where are you aiming? Are you aiming uh, for the corner for the celebration or for – tell I'll, I'll go with them to the goal. I mean, to me, other than a celebration shot, to me, the best shot has the puck in it. Um, you know, no matter what, if, if it's just a guy with his empty stick, unless they're battling in front of the goal or something like that. But um, a lot of times I'll just, oh, there's no puck. I'm not using that image. I, I just kind of bypass it. But yeah, on a breakaway, I'll go for the, the goal. Um, Cause sometimes you can get the, the puck he headed into the goal and then, you know, the, the downtrodden goalie look and uh, then follow them over to the celebration. And, you know, honestly, the, the celebration shots are the, are the ones you really, you want the guy to come skating at you with his hands in the air or, or take the knee and slide across the ice. I mean, those are some of my favorite shots. I've got Ryan Carruthers back from the playoffs. Uh, Gordon ran one on a poster. And, you know, it was like Ryan was skating right at me, hands in the air, mouth open, teeth missing, mouth guard hanging out. It's like, you know, that's the shot you want. That's, that's what makes me happy. Brad, uh, thinking back over the 19 seasons, is there any one shot that you are most proud of? Whether it was a goal or not, it's just you captured the precise moment. And then the flip side of that is, is there a situation that you just missed it by a fraction having the perfect picture? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of the misses. Um, you know, I'll have a shot, a guy skating, the goalie reaching, but you don't see a puck. And to me, it's like, it doesn't tell the story. You know, if, even if the puck's like going through the five hole and I can't see it, you really don't know what the shot is. Having the, the puck in the net, the goalie, the player, that to me is the perfect shot. Um, so there are a lot of misses. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, and then there's some of those where you just don't get it focused in time and you see the image, but it's not sharp. That's probably even more frustrating than not getting the image. Um, as far as my favorite, um, and it's weird how this one sticks in my mind. There's one where, where Yannick scored a goal and he, he came across the, across the crease. Um, he, he was coming left to right as you look at the net. I was down in the corner where we were fortunate enough to have a hole cut that I could shoot through. He's literally horizontal in the air. You see the goalie and you see the puck in the back of the net. To me, that's one of my, my favorite shots of the whole time I've been with the Royals. Just it told the whole story. With the, you know, you talk about those near misses and uh, I feel like, and the perfect shot, a lot of times, Pat, you know, in what we do, it's our favorite goal call or our favorite description could be different than the most amazing, the most amazing goal or the best play of the year. So you might not capture it as cleanly on air as you'd want to. But Brad, I'm curious too, because you mentioned there's 200 shots a game, sometimes you know, we as a front office or fans might only get a chance to see, you know, six or seven of the best pictures of Absolutely. the game. When, when a, a social media director or a fan is looking for what makes a good picture, what in your mind makes a good picture, whether it's on social media or otherwise? To me, it's something that you don't even need a caption for. It, it kind of, you look at the image and you see either the, the joy, the exuberance of the celebration you know, for that, that big moment, um, the, the puck going in the net, a, a fight, obviously. Um, I know the ECHL doesn't want us to post fight images, but I'm sorry, they still look good. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of thing. I, I just, to me, if, if I don't need a caption, that's the job. Does that make sense? I, you know. Absolutely. Go ahead, Pat. I was just going to follow up on that. What is your favorite place to shoot from in the arena? Um, I've got to say that, that shot by the Zamboni entrance. Um, oh, I should qualify that. Different reasons. Um, when you're shooting from the Zamboni doors, 
the plays coming at you, if you're, you know, the second period, that's, you can get the most interaction. The passes across, I have a best angle. I can shoot, you know, board to board. I, I have enough distance behind the net that I can get the goal type of stuff. Um, if you want to get the, the best shot overall, probably shooting from the stands. If you shoot up um, around the concourse level, you know, right where you guys were broadcasting from last season, um, that gives you the best view, the, the angle to get shots with the player, the goalie, and the goal because you're, you're further away. You can see it a little bit more developed. But um, shooting on ice level still has the thrill for me. Um, I mean, shooting from between the benches, um, you're limited. To, uh, it's tough sometimes in the second period because your defenders are, are coming on and off ice across where I shoot from. I mean, it sounds a little weird, but that the traffic in front of you makes a big difference. Um, you know, I've had some serious conversations with linesmen asking them to move out of the, my, my way, and they just don't seem to go for it. So <laughs> it is kind of funny, though, because some of the ones I have trained, Judd Ritter and I have known each other for as long as I've been doing it. And Judd's, a, as you know, Pat, a longtime linesman. And I've actually seen him skate past me and duck as he skates past me. So <laughs> he's trying to help me out. <laughs> yeah, Kirk McDonald has some issues with some of the linesmen, too, but we won't. <laughs> I've heard that. I, just a few words on the bench. I won't mention those words, but <laughs> he normally asks them to come over to the bench, not to move away from it, though. That'd be the difference. You're right. You're absolutely right. Brad, uh, is there a place in the arena that you would like to shoot from that you've never had the chance? Um, yeah, I would love if they'd have a hole right on the goal line. You know that I'd be I'd be looking down the goal line. Um, the the glass shooting through the glass is possible, but it's not the best shot. Um, I would love if they get a hole somewhere right on the goal line because then you get all that action right in front. Um, but, you know, we're working on that. We uh, hopefully can get something cut. You know, we had two holes. One of them broke, so the glass was replaced and they didn't cut a new one. But um, I think that would be an awesome, an awesome view. Back in the old days, if you remember, before the nets went up, you could use a, a long lens and shoot from up on that concourse level and get some really cool shots of the play coming right at you. You can still shoot through the net, but it doesn't give you that crystal crisp quality. You mentioned other sports, uh, football, and you're, you've, been, you've done them all. Uh, hockey, by nature, uh, unless Usain Bolt is doing track and field, is the fastest, uh, the fastest of them all. Uh, how would you describe the speed from the ice and being right there on the ice to the common fan that's never been between the benches? Double what you're used to seeing, I think. I mean, people will often comment if they get the opportunity for a glass seat, wow, this, this game is much faster and they're much bigger than you realize. I, I think that's the common thing that I hear. Um, and honestly, I think from 2001 until now, the quality of the ECHL play has gotten much, much better. I, I think it's a faster game than it was 20 years ago. I mean, Pat, how, what's your feeling on that? Do you see that? I couldn't agree with you more, Brad. I think... I think there's a segment of really good hockey fans that kind of uh, poo-poo the ECHL, you know, double A, even though they're used to the double A Reading fighting fills. But I tell them this league is a lot, a significantly better league than you've maybe heard about back through the years. And Brad, if you'll remember those early years, it wasn't unusual at all on the weekends to have two or three guys in the lineup that were former players that were filling holes in the lineup almost like they'd play a men's league. I remember Greg Mishler came back yeah. <laughs> cameo roles longer than he played for the Royals full time. And he was a really good player and obviously could pull that off. But 
my point, you don't see that anymore. Everybody in an ECHL uniform on a given night is in it as a professional to make a career of the game. And I think yeah. that's improved the quality of the play by uh, just leaps and bounds. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a much faster game than it was 20 years ago at this level. Uh, Ryan Crothers being a fun example of that. When we had him on the podcast earlier this year, he talked about how Larry called him up. Uh, you know, Ryan was was training at the uh, Amish Hockey League at the Body Zone, staying in shape and keeping his game going. And Larry said, you're hopping on the bus. We need you. This is my, you know, one call a year. I get to have you come back. And Ryan put up uh, four points, I think it was, in his first two games back <laughs> after retiring. You're right. That type of stuff, it can happen here or there. We saw the Nick Nieder, that's such a unique situation with injuries a couple right. of years ago come in, and that's what made it so unbelievable is in Roy that was the first time in even probably five or six years for the Royals that they had that type of a situation uh, where they absolutely needed someone at the last minute, and the e-bug situation is obviously a really uh, unique one at that. Uh, the Royals over 19 years have been one of the most successful franchises there's only from both on the ice and off there's only been five that have spent at least 20 years in one particular city the royals joining that group this year south carolina florida everblades johnstown wheeling and cincinnati does not count because they went in the ahl and echl and took a couple of years off so the royals will be the fifth the fifth team of that i should say what do you think has been the longevity factor with this franchise we have a core fan I mean it's obviously it's less than what it used to be but it's it's been a core group that has supported it and they continue to support it I mean it's not as big and that's for various reasons it's economic it's you know things like that but I think um, enough people have hung on and really supported the franchise that that we've been able to hold on to it Brad uh, just shifting gears a little bit you know, looking back at the history and the, how solid the franchise has been. If possible, pick out two or three players that for whatever reason are your favorites, whether they were easy to photograph, whether they were more cooperative. Who are the two or three guys that come to mind uh, in your time? Just may, and maybe they're just your personal favorites in terms of their skill set. Um, yeah, they're, they're, I, it's, it's funny. The, the guys are – I've never had an issue with a guy. I mean, there's some guys that will joke with you. Some guys don't. And I guess because of what I do, I, I look at it like that's their job and I have my job. I don't really joke with them during a game. It's, it's, it's I take, my, take care of my business, they take care of theirs. Some feel more comfortable doing that. Um, I mean, I think some of the fun ones, um, from my perspective, just being around them, Yutaka Fukafuji, I mean, just hearing him stumble through English, you know, it, uh, he was probably, he and Usti were probably about equal on what they could say. Um, but I think the guys gave Usti a few more choice words that maybe he didn't want to repeat, that he didn't know he should repeat. Um, but Yutaka was a, was a very gracious person. And all the years, 20 years, I've never really asked for an autograph. I just don't feel it's, it's appropriate. But I did ask Yutaka Fukufuji to sign a print that I had shot of him in Japanese. So I, ha I do have a print hanging in my office of, uh, of him being the first Japanese-American player to play in the ECHL. Um, you know, to play it for us and then in Japanese. So, I mean, that was a memory. I don't know if it's a favorite player, but um, a lot of the guys have been great. Ryan, Ryan was a real good person to deal with. Nice person. Um, you know, always a kind word. Um, 
Uh, actually, Braden's been really interesting. He, he reaches out to me almost after every game and said, you got any good pictures of me? And I'll often write back and say, there's no good pictures of you. But uh, <laughs> now he's, I've had a lot of, a lot of good experiences, a lot of nice friendships. I mean, you know, people like you guys, um, you know, Brian Gregeski, you know, because of where I'm located, Grogs and I got to be friendly and, you know, he paid his dues and I was really happy to see him go where he is. Um, I mean, there for a while, he and I were kind of like the, uh, the dinosaurs of the whole group. So um, I, I can't say I have a favorite, but everybody's been great. It's been a really neat personal experience and just being around the team has been awesome. Okay, we'll ask about some of the trash talking here because uh, <laughs> Pat and I always want to know what's being said uh, and we'll keep to George Carlin, seven words you can't say <laughs> on television, but uh, what are some of the conversations like? What do, you, what do you hear? What type of conversations do you hear down in between the benches? There are a lot of George Carlin conversations. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, a lot of speak of people's mothers um, not necessarily on the positive, but, um, and it, it's kind of interesting that it kind of flows with the coach. I mean, Larry was a pretty quiet guy. You really didn't hear a lot from Larry. Kirk's a little bit more vocal, um, especially on the negative side. Like, he'll let the linesman in the official know. Um, it, did, it took a lot for Larry. Obviously, to me, the most colorful guy in the bench was Carl Taylor. I mean, Pat, you'll remember uh, the, the, I mean, that's the only time I ever, ducked from a broken stick flying over my head. I mean, there's been lots of broken sticks, but they usually didn't come from the home bench from the coach. Uh, Carl, good I think he almost beheaded Chris Ballard. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a wild swing. And, and uh, Carl, Carl really, that stick broke into three or four pieces. But um, yeah, the, the talk is interesting. I mean, it, you can't be faint of heart. Um, sometimes if a new photographer will come in, you guys both know Sarah, the young lady that, that is in there. She's shooting for the sim bin. Uh, when she first started, I think she was a little taken aback. Um, some of the language, as you said, Sarah, it's hockey. Now, she, you know, she's a, a seasoned veteran now, so it, it, it kind of doesn't sink in for her. The other thing that people will notice, and this is kind of off track here, I'm sorry, David, um, it's not a bench talk, but back when we won the cup in 2013, um, the idea was to give the season ticket holders a photograph with the cup. So we set up in the locker room after it was the beginning of the next season, we set up in the locker room with the cup and hung some jerseys around. And uh, you know, the guys were, had just finished practice and the, the language down there in the, the hallway gets a little colorful too. And there's some young ladies down there. And, you know, I heard, I saw a mother covering her daughter's ears, but uh, the other thing that happened in that same evening and wasn't the same lady, but uh, a young lady walked into the locker room, got about 10 feet in and went running out because of the smell of the equipment. So uh, she, she found a trash can and uh, that was the end of her picture. But uh, the, the language is, is definitely, it's an interesting, but it's hockey. I mean, I guess growing up around it and I think, you know, being a guy, you're a little more used to it. Um, there's a lot I can't repeat. One of the most unique things in a funny sense was there used to be a young lady who's a photographer for the Reading Eagle, you know, uh, probably in her late twenties at that point. And we're, we're playing, I believe it was Dayton. Pat, you're going to have to help me with this. Scooter Smith, did he play for Dayton? Dayton Bombers, that's correct. Okay. Scooter was skating off after a shift. He skates by the photo box. Next thing you know, I hear him say, what are you doing after the game? And I figured he wasn't talking to me. So, <laughs> so he actually was uh, checking with this young lady who was a photographer to see what she was doing after the game mid-shift. So what was the answer? Did she accept? 
<laughs> I, I think she was stunned because I looked to her and I said, I guarantee he wasn't talking to me. You better answer. And by that time, he had skated <laughs> off to the bench. But, um, you know, there, there's funny anecdotes like that. Um, you, you definitely hear some, some interesting conversations. Uh, as you said, David, when, when Kirk uh, summons the official, he has a few key words. Um, it's interesting to hear what they say. And even the, even the linesmen, um, at a break in the play, they'll come over and we keep water and a towel there in, in our section. So we'll put it up there and I'll hear them having some conversations. Well, you know, do you think it was offsides? Wasn't it offsides? And they'll be the first to admit they don't make all the calls and they will look to each other, which I found in the beginning was really interesting. And even that has become more of a, a teamwork effort over the years. I think the officials are really discussing what's going on in the game. And if they, if they missed a call or one of them will say, Hey, I think you missed that one. And it's a really good give and take. And that from that point of conversation, there's a real learning experience. And the same with the guys on the bench. They'll come off a shift and, you know, I'll hear them say, my bad, I missed the pass. Or, you know, if I'm breaking this way, uh, again, we're going back to that teamwork. And, and this past year, I heard more of that than ever, that, you know, look for me here, or if that happens again, that kind of thing. So it, it was, it's really interesting. It's a whole new perspective. And, you know, um, we got to get you guys hooked up with a, an off-ice mic that you can come down there and spend a period. I think it's, you know, kind of like the, the flyer situation. Uh, Pierre, Pierre McGuire. Yes, yes, exactly. Pat and I have always uh, joked about, and you make the game broadcast more than you think, because if that puck comes <laughs> flying into the cameraman's well, I know a couple of them have uh, come close, and there's been a couple. Uh, this year was the worst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how many times have you been hit? Where have you been hit? What's it like um, to be hit? Honestly, knock on wood, this was the first year I've been hit in the head. Um, it was a, and I, I, I never saw it. It was a, it was a clearing pass coming out of our zone. You know, I, the, the camera was up I, and it, they were against the, the near wall. So I, I really don't have a view with the bench and everything. I, I was kind of shooting. And the next thing you know, all I remember is kind of like a, a very split second blacking out. And um, somebody on the bench, I can't remember who it was, just said, are you okay? And then, you know, um, Sean came over and I, I had a pretty good hit on my noggin. I mean, the next morning it was the size of half a golf ball, but that was the, the scariest I've ever been hit, but I've been hitting the shoulder, the arms, and it's not just the puck. The stick is actually a, a little bit more wicked coming in, depending on where they're happening, you know, checking towards me or something like that. But um, we kind of have a, a joking rule. If you don't get hit by the puck and it comes into the box, you throw it over the boards to a kid. If you get hit by the puck, you can keep it. So my collection's probably over a dozen. Any, any, a serious side to that question, any thoughts about wearing a helmet when you're in? There's, the there's been talk of it. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm just a stubborn old school guy. Um, I, I feel it would impede me. But I, I will not be surprised to see maybe at some point a, an edict coming down from the league that we have to do that. Um, I have a helmet. I, I've just never felt comfortable wearing it. So. Um, I push may come to shove, and this year was probably the one thing that would make me think about it. Well, we normally, when we see the puck go into the box there, Dave and I are commenting about how deft a foot you got. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll scratch that now that right. you took one in the noggin. That's right. Exactly. As I get older, Pat, you know, the, the reflexes slow up a little bit. <laughs> I, I think that uh, what I failed to mention about the one that hit you afterwards is that I think I called it like, you know, you were in the, like uh, you were within the, you know, 
the uh, Call of Duty within battle, and you were shooting with one hand, and I think you had some ice or something on the back of your head. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, Burbs did give me an ice pack, and I thought, well, I'm in this box. I'm not going to miss like the the last six minutes of the period. So I did what I could one-handed, and um, I guess on a personal note, it's very fortunate, unfortunate, and fortunate that you're not on live radio anymore. I have an 85-year-old mom who's a huge hockey fan, and she loves to listen to it but not internet savvy, so she really can't listen now. In the old days, had, she been, had you been on the radio, I probably would have gotten like a phone call on my phone for 10 minutes in a row. Are you okay? But <laughs> fortunately, she missed out on that one. Moms are great, regardless of how old we get, Brad. <laughs> That's true, Pat. Very true. We talked about a little bit about the different coaches. Uh, about Kirk, what strikes me you mentioned the conversations is that I know that there might be colorful language like any hockey player or coach, but he seems to be very direct and very pointed in why something was done right or done wrong. What do you think about those details and how detailed he is perhaps in his critiques or his positive, uh, positive uh, yeah, lights I, on things? I agree with you in the sense that, the minute they come off from their shift, he will walk behind them and, and tell them positive or negative. Um, you know, this was, this was good. Um, and if it was bad, it may be a colorful description of how bad it was, but he doesn't mince words. And I, to me, that's what you want as you're developing as a player, or, you know, as anybody, even if it's your boss at work, you know, be honest with me, tell me what's good and tell me what's not. And he's very upfront with that. Um, more so probably than, uh, I, I would say Derek was like that, Clancy. Um, but um, Larry was, I mean, Larry was a very reserved guy. He never got emotionally high or emotionally low. It took a lot. But um, a Kirk is a, probably one of the better communicators behind the bench that I've seen. Um, and it was funny because I don't mean any disrespect, but I think in the beginning when Nick started coaching, he was a little more quiet. I see, I've seen him a little more outspoken too. You guys will probably see as well, you know, from just the gestures they're making and things like that, the, the comfort level. But yeah, Kirk, Kirk is definitely a direct communicator. That's well put, David. I, I never thought of it like that. But, um, you know, everybody's different. They all have their own style. Um, Larry, Larry was just a different personality. But I think from my view, I think Kirk learned a ton from Larry as far as finding players and developing a player. I think that the years he spent as a player and working on him were probably priceless for him. And I, I'm guessing he would say the same. Brad, shifting gears a little bit and to put your thinking cap on, you know, you talked about the age of digital cameras when you started with the Royals. Where do you see your profession heading? What's on the frontier that David and I couldn't even begin to think about? I, I just kind of have wonders. I mean, my profession has changed dramatically in the years I've been in it. People don't value the photograph like they used to. And I'm talking outside of sports photography, but um, so you've had to change with it. I think we're going to get to the point where maybe the still camera as a whole may disappear. Maybe not in my lifetime or your lifetime, Pat, and maybe not even David's, but I think they're going to start picking still photographs from a video clip. So, you know, you may not even need a guy like me. You'll have your video team and then they'll go in and say, Hey, there's the shot we want. We'll pick it off the video clip and use that. And, you know, again, print media is dying. Um, you know, the, 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 the newspaper industry, uh, both my children were involved in the newspaper industry. One, my son here in Reading, who used to shoot with me in a box, which was, as a parent, was a really cool experience. You know, he was, um, he's gotten out of the newspaper industry because of the way it's going. I have a daughter who shoots in state college for the newspaper there. Um, so we're, 
the, the printed photograph is disappearing. Um, it's still gonna be on social media and things like that, but I can see the day, even the newer cameras are mirrorless, and I think you're gonna be seeing stills come from a video clip down the road. And it's interesting too, because there's a certain, I'm trying to think of the right way to, to, to word this, but anyone can take a photo at any time, but it doesn't mean that that quick content is the thing, but it doesn't mean that it's the right thing. Sometimes it's just the easy thing, which I think is what makes the value of seeing a really high quality image perhaps jump out more and more appreciated at times than when you take a picture at a family gathering and it's blurry and half the people have red eyes and you know it, it, the, lighting, it, the lighting is off and one person's face is completely covered in a shadow. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you know, I, I try and treat it, respect it as an art and you know, the years you spend lighting and looking for the images and even in the sports, looking for the right moment. I mean, that's big. I mean, I, there's some games, it's like, oh, it's just another game. And then there's some games like you really feel on. I'm sure you guys feel the same way. You have good nights and bad nights. I mean, you know, there's nights that things roll and you just, it's a good night for you. And then there's nights it's like, eh, it was okay. <laughs> I, I know just going back briefly to where we did the, the photos of the cup in the room, in the locker room, um, Teeth had a big issue with that. He felt that the locker room was a sanctuary and he got quite upset with the front office when they brought in the idea of bringing the fans in there one by one to do a picture. I mean, he just felt it was a, a special space, which I respect. I'm not knocking it, but you know, again, along the, the lines of hockey, um, you know, I was just trying to think of some other things I wanted to touch on. Um, when I, when I shoot for you guys, to, I don't have to do a lot of captioning. You all know who everybody is, but I'll often shoot as a freelancer for the newspaper if they don't have anybody and people will say, you know, who was that? And I, I don't know their first names. Like they're all hockey names, you know, like, like David, you're finer. I mean, I, I don't know David fine, you know, you know, even the, the like Jaybird, what's his real name? A, a lot of people don't realize, I, I don't know their real names. You know, it's usually hockey names and it was, it's kind of a cool, a cool backside look. And I, I look back over the years of, you know, the things that stick out. And when David asked me to do this, I thought, I mean, one of the things I think obviously was the, the 42nd Ray Delaro hat trick. That was, that was a moment. Um, and Pat, you'll remember the night we were there to what, 1130 when it was like a, a three overtime game. Were you, were you around for that one? You were there? Yeah, that was, uh, that was against Wheeling. Uh, That's right. We lost it. We lost it. <laughs> That's right. Well, and I was rooting. I had this, uh, I've done this long enough. Thompson and I used to talk about my one desire. And now I figured out we've got to get to the, pretty much to the end of a third overtime. I want to do a game at home that goes past midnight, and it's going to take four overtimes. I think, <laughs> hit the bewitching hour. That's what I want to do. I had run out of water. I had almost run out of cough drops. It <laughs> been a bad thing if it would have gone to a fourth overtime. I'll bet. I could I'll not. Be I could not believe that when the Royals played Manchester, which is the only playoff overtime hockey in my career that I I've, I've seen live. Um, and had the chance to broadcast live, I could not believe that – I'm talking about from the broadcast perspective. The playing standpoint has to be just – I can't even – that by the middle of the first overtime, and I'm talking as I was 25 years old, the, you know, mental exha exhaustion that you begin to feel in your descriptions uh, becomes much more difficult than in the middle of a second period where your mind is trained to kind of be going – 
all in and the description factor for a two and a half, three hour span. Um, I, I can't imagine three overtimes and trying to vary up how your, you know, descriptions on the air go into different things. From a photography standpoint, do you feel that in the third period of a game, sometimes if you're because of the focus that you have to maintain, that you feel a little bit of uh, oh, yeah. stamina kicking in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost like you need that power energy drink, you know, before you keep going because, you know, you're definitely your your mindset's different. You you start to get a little bit less less sharp, like you're saying. So um, it was a it was a fun night. I mean, you know, we were dragging, and I, I can't imagine being on skates for that long. I mean, it's just unbelievable, but. You know, there's so many good memories from that, from that kind of thing. And the other thing I think I miss is, and you, you know, Pat, do you agree that the rivalries, the Johnstowns, the Atlantic Cities, the Trentons, I think I miss that. And I think the fans miss that. Absolutely. It's, that's one of the unfortunate, uh, I think, uh, shortcomings, of, if I can use that word, of where the league has been uh, recently. I think the shift of franchises, ECHL, AHL, created that hub up in the Northeast. But it took away some of the what had really developed into rivalries, especially Trenton. And the reason I think Trenton was so it was an easy drive for fans to get there. Most of the time, there'd be more Royals fans than there were Devils slash Titan fans in the building. The building was terrific. It was a, clearly a prof, uh, you know a top tier prof, uh, professional building. The the broadcast location was terrific. I think it's unfortunate that. Some of those teams are no longer here. And then you talk about Johnstown. That's a natural, that just was a natural rivalry. Two, you know, central Pennsylvania uh, locations that, you know, would beat their brains out. And up in Johnstown, I never did a game from there, but a very unique rink, uh, old and unique historic rink. I, I think those are some of the things, unfortunately, that the progress the league has made, uh, some of those, uh, unfortunately, went away. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun. I mean, you got to know the, the, the guys on the other teams a little bit better because, you know, you saw them. Not that we don't see enough teams frequently now, but it was just a different feel. I mean, you know, the, the John Brophy days of him throwing things and, and things like that. It, it was old-time hockey. I mean, the game has definitely evolved over the 20 years just in the ECHL, I mean, the NHL as well. But it was a much more physical – how, how would you describe it? It was just – it was old-time hockey compared to what it is now. It wasn't as skill-oriented. Skill uh, Brad and I had a chance to play golf together a couple of weeks ago. I, you know, Brad, this has been fun, and, you know, I, I really respect your work. I mean, just some of the images that I've been fortunate enough to see that David or Tomer has shared with me, I mean, it's, you've captured a lot of those, I'll call it those moments precisely at the right time. You know, thinking about those overtime goals. All of us, I think, live and do this for – I do this for overtime playoff hockey. <laughs> Can't count on that. But to me, there is nothing like the surge of adrenaline when that first overtime starts. And by the time you get to the third, you may be running on fumes, but you don't. You just don't want to miss that key call or that key shot. And that's, I think, what has, brings us all back year to year. I agree. And I think live hockey, there, to me, there's nothing that matches it. I mean, baseball can get exciting, you know, like a tie game in the ninth, but I think overtime hockey and the, and the thrill of being on location. I mean, even watching a game on TV, you can get excited, but it's nothing like being in the rink. I agree with you, Pat. And, um, I feel fortunate that I've been able to do it for 20 years. It's, it's given me an opportunity to stay in hockey without worrying about me breaking my bones. Um, you know, I, my younger days when I, I first had kids, I, I considered playing in a, the OFL, the Old Farts League. 
Um, but even those, you know, you, you don't know what you're going to do. And being self-employed, you got to think. But this has given me the opportunity to stay around the game and enjoy it, um, meet a lot of great people. I mean, you guys, you know, it's, it's a friendship that, you know, we're not going out and having a beer every week, but it's just a, a friendship you're always going to value for your whole life. And I've been fortunate enough to get a lot of those throughout the years. And, you know, Pat, you working with the three or four different guys you have, all good people. I, I got to work with them. And, you know, I even have to say something nice about Calvin, as hard as that is to do, David. But <laughs> uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity. I, I thank you for having me on. And it, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, hopefully we'll all see each other in October. We'll uh, keep our fingers crossed. Well, yeah, do the same. Um, what I would say is that uh, we'll know, uh, we'll probably have an indication in the next few weeks for the fans listening um, and watching this that uh, we'll, we'll, see what, we'll see what's up. The ECHL uh, consigliaries, we'll call them, will uh, we'll be coming together at some point in the next few weeks. And at that point, we'll, we'll understand a little bit more. But uh, I guess we've, this will be my last point, and you guys can speak to this. We've seen what a loss it is to not have the Reading Fightin' Phils or the Iron Pigs or the Cross Cutters or the local baseball teams this summer. And I think we all understand that we want to get back to a place where we don't have to say that about the Royals and the Phantoms and the Flyers. So that's just my, my final point. It's been a, it's been a tough summer. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, better things are on the horizon once we understand where the ECHL will be going. So, yeah. Absolutely. Brad, I concur. I concur. Yep. Brad and Pat, thanks again so much. And uh, this was, this was a blast. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Take care guys. Take care. Take care.